Hey, you are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich. We are coming to you live via the podcast, airwaves, and the radio, and we are about to have some good music here. This band we see behind me on the stage is Hearts Gone South, everybody. Hearts Gone South. everybody. Hearts gone south. I'm going to read you a little bit of our mail tonight, a little bit of our mail sent in to us from listeners from all over the nation who seem to have nothing better to do than put their pen to paper and tell us a little bit about themselves. Our first letter comes from Nick, Columbia, South America. South America. Sean, I've been in Columbia for six days doing mission work. I had a break after a morning of sharing the gospel and feeding children. And after I talked with my wife, I just wanted to hear a little bit of English. And not just any English, but Southern English, because we both know there's a big difference. I don't speak Spanish, 
And after a few days, I, I just needed to hear something from home, so I pulled up your recent radio show. My wife and I listened to it every Saturday morning as we eat breakfast with our two daughters, Emma, who's five, and Maggie, who is two. Thanks for a radio show that's funny, family-friendly, and has great music. It also makes me laugh, and it makes me feel a little closer to home. Keep up the great work. Your friend, Nick. Dear Nick, thank you for the work you're doing in South America. Hurry home, brother, when you're finished. Love your friend, Sean. Aaron Lightcap, Winnipeg, Canada. Hi, Sean, I'm in Winnipeg, and I just wanted to take you around town if you're ever up around these parts. You will see that we are a cool place and nothing to be afraid of, even though we are Canadians. <laughs> we can't help it. Canadians are just who we were born to be. We know we're weird, but that's just how God made us. It's a perfect place to live up here, as long as it's not winter, because then it's like dying a slow death eternally. <laughs> so come to Canada sometime and look me up. I'll make it worth your while. Aaron Lockcap. Dear Aaron, I just might do that someday when I feel, feel like going to Canada. Jordan Tateman, Jordan Tateman, Chanute, Kansas. Sean, my granny is a woman who likes to do things her own way. Even though she's a little senile. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. The dementia hadn't taken away her stubbornness, though she is just as hard-headed as ever. And sometimes she'll fool you, and you'll think she's in her right mind completely, but then you realize this woman is absolutely nuts. <laughs> I still love her, though. I still love her, even though last night she wanted to make a blackberry cobbler for everybody. Now, my granny always had the best blackberry cobblers all my life. She was a consummate cook. She got going in the kitchen, and my sister was supposed to be watching her and making sure everything was going all right, but my sister got carried away playing on her phone. <laughs> when the cobbler came out, it was weird looking, and we knew something was wrong. I took a bite, and I saw that they were black beans and not blackberries. First, we weren't going to eat it, but we saw how much it meant to her to have everybody together in one place for her to be in the saddle again as the head cook. So we ate it all up. And my granny had added so much sugar to these black beans, it tasted like eating cat vomit. Anyway, I don't ever want to eat it again, but I'm glad we ate it for her benefit. I thought you'd appreciate this story. Please feel free to use it on your show. Brandon Ruthers, Boone, North Carolina. I was on my way home when I realized I wasn't going to make it home without wetting my pants. <laughs> I pulled over and I tried my best to hide behind a tree. And while I was doing the deed, a deputy walked up behind me. Right then and there, I was sure he was going to slap a fine on me or something, or at least a warning. But when he realized what I was doing, he just gave me my space, and he got back into his cruiser, and he waited. I was so embarrassed when I was done. I walked up to his cruiser, and he was just sitting in his car, grinning at me, and he said, make sure you flush the toilet, big guy. <laughs> but the truth is, he was just making sure my car wasn't pulled over on the road because of some, something terrible that had happened. He was just doing his kind deed as a servant of the people, and then he was gone. I'm still embarrassed. I'm still embarrassed, but 
I do want to say thank you to our men and women in blue. George Bomar, New York City, New York. Dear Sean, hey there. My name is Georgia, yes, like the state. I'm sitting on my couch in the middle of New York City blaring country music and reading your blog. I should be reading and writing a book report, but instead I'm reading your blog and I don't, I don't have many memories of you, but Jamie, your wife, was my pre-kindergarten teacher at Village Baptist Church. And I do remember sitting on your couch once watching cartoons. I must have been three years old at the time. We watched the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Now I'm 16 years old. We live in New York City. I just got back two days ago from working on a cattle ranch in California. Most days I can't figure out if I'm a city girl or a country kid, but reading your stuff has made me realize something kind of spectacular. I'm both. I'm a girl who wanted to wear camouflage and loves mud and boot-cut jeans and sweet tea and would rather never wear a dress. But I'm also the girl who loves Starbucks iced coffees, riding on the subway, shopping, and fancy dinners. Anyway, reading your, your blog and procrastinating my summer homework has made me very happy. So from the bottom of my city girl covered country heart, thank you. All the love, Georgia. Dear Georgia, I remember you so well, it would probably scare you. I remember all of your family very well, especially your two sisters. Brandy McMahon, Mason City, Iowa. Sean, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I know this, right? And I'm in love with a man who has a very big stomach, but he's perfect for me. He's perfect for me. He's a single dad of two boys. I have one daughter, and whenever we're together, we're a family. I can just feel it. What do I make him to make sure that he's in love with me forever? I love him so much, I just can't imagine living without him. Dear Brandy, a man needs two things in this life if you ask me, and I'm no expert. But if you ask me, he needs two things, saturated fat and large quantities of sugar. Now, nature has discovered a way to combine these two elements into magic long, long ago. It happened when God made Eve. And Eve came strutting toward Adam, holding a big pound cake in her hands. That's right, butter and sugar and white flour. So take my advice with a grain of salt, because again, I don't know much. But bake him a pound cake and write him a note telling him what you just told me about how much you love him. Andy from Ottawa, Tennessee. Dear Sean, have you ever had a special hat that you loved for years? Because my wife's new puppy just destroyed mine. <laughs> Dear Andy, the answer is yes. I once had a hat that my dog inherited, and it was a hat with the Atlanta Braves logo on the front. At the time, the Braves were the worst team in that gum baseball. So I did what any God-fearing Baptist man would have done. I poured ketchup all over the hat, and I let my dog keep on chewing. <laughs> Sincerely, your friend, Sean Dietrich. Becky Hanks, Birmingham, Alabama. Dear Sean, I went to grammar school with a boy named Trey, the smartest boy in the class. When he was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, he answered, a bishop. Notice he didn't say a priest 
No, a bishop, which is much higher than a priest. So into my 60s, I Googled him. He ended up more than a one-star general in the U.S. Army. His list of schooling and achievements were a mile long. I traced his life and compared what he was doing from a year to a year to another year to what I was doing. And when he was getting his accolades and his promotions and his graduate from West Point and War College, I was mostly just having fun, going to school from time to time, getting married and divorced every now and then. I did, however, get my accounting degree finally at the age of 34. My achievements probably seem unremarkable compared to his, but, but I can design and make a beautiful quilt. And I have a wonderful son who, by the grace of God, has survived and thrived. And I have a small circle of loving, loyal friends and family. And my friend's Nicaraguan wife is teaching me Spanish, which is a lifelong dream of mine. It might not seem remarkable, my life. But at this point, I'm 67 years old, and I'm finally ready to be me rather than anybody else in this world. What more can a girl ask for? Warren McChilds, McDonough, Georgia. Sean, I'm going to ask my son's fourth grade teacher to marry me. She's been on several dates with me, and we've been seeing each other for the past year, and I just had to tell you about it. She's the perfect woman. Kids love her. Parents love her. Everybody loves her, and she's so much more mature than I am, even though she's three years younger than I am. Please, if you have anything in you that is a connection to the big guy, ask the good Lord to give me courage, because I am scared. This girl could have anybody she wants in this world. Anybody. Someone as pretty as her. I just hope she wants me. Dear Warren, from everybody here tonight, may you see how truly special you are. May this woman who you talk about recognize that you are a man who could have anybody in this world, a man as handsome and charming and well-spoken as you, could have anybody you want, but, but you want her. May things work out to your favor. May things work out to her favor. May things work out for all your children's favor. May things be the absolute best for you and yours. Let me know what she says. I'll be waiting on pins and needles, and so will everybody here tonight. And that's letters from our listeners. We're going to have another tune here from Hearts Gone South, everybody. Hearts Gone South. Well, you don't know that you make me weak. I guess you can't see my heart at your feet. I'm just waiting here.
August is the time of year when I believe God duplicates what heaven will be like. Beulah Land. Beulah Land is nothing but eternal August. August is the time of year when the temperature is just right for life to thrive. When the temperature gets into the late 90s and the early 100s, life cannot thrive. Life can only shrivel up and die a very painful death. When the temperature gets into the 60s, you start to feel a little bit, a little bit cold and lethargic. You're stuck inside because this is north, northwest Florida and south Alabama, and, and the 60s is the kind of weather that you, you have to bundle up for. It's, it's a horrible, horrible time of year. Even a sweater cannot make it any better. But the 80s, the mid-80s, and the early 80s, late 70s, this is temperature that, that supports human life. This is temperature that makes August beautiful. You go outside and no longer are you drenched, but you just have a little thin layer of humidity all over your skin, a thin layer that just feels good when the breeze blows on you and cools you off a little bit. This is the time of year when children, children all over the world, all over the nation at 
least, at least the great American South, they wander around with that, with that wonderful smile on their face and those rosy cheeks and twinkling eyes. And it feels as if when you talk to them that they have swallowed a gallon of Mountain Dew. They run from side to side that cannot stand still because it's August. It is all the benefits of summer with none of its drawbacks and all the benefits of autumn with none of its drawbacks. The sun starts to set just a little bit earlier than it used to. Sunset happens around 6 o'clock on a really, really good day, 545. And that leads you to stop work. Mankind doesn't stop work nearly enough. I've always believed laziness to be a very important virtue. <laughs> just a few days ago, I was walking down to the place where I normally fish. I wasn't even planning on fishing. I just wanted to see what it looked like on a fine August day right there on the edge of the water. The Choctahatchee Bay, I saw a young boy. He was, I could see him through the tall grass. He was standing there. He had a fishing rod in his hands, and he was throwing it toward the water, and I could hear his bait kerplunk in the water, and he would, he would reel it back toward him gently, hoping what children have hoped for thousands and thousands of millennia, that a fish would just somehow be swimming by and accidentally get himself stuck on that cheap lure he bought at Walmart. I can remember my mother sending me off with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a paper sack. The sandwich had been wrapped in foil, and after a full day of fishing, that sandwich would get hot, and the peanut butter would be soft, and it would be slipping and sliding the pieces of colonial bread on that peanut butter. I can remember baiting my little pinfish trap with, with ham and slices of old chicken that had gone bad in the refrigerator and catching them pinfishes to bait my hooks with. And I thought about this when I approached that child. And I was just so proud of that, that kid standing there because he didn't have a cell phone in his hands. And today, children always have cell phones in the hands. They can't do anything without it. And I saw this boy out there in the elements of nature just existing. Just existing. And I, I, I approached him and I said, hey, how you doing? He said, howdy. Howdy, sir. I said, you know, I used to fish this whole long, long, long time ago when I was much younger. He said, yeah, yeah, it's nice here. He said, I found this through my fishing app on my phone. (laughs) And that kid pulled out his cell phone and he pulled up an aerial photograph of our world and he zoomed in using only his fingers and he showed this very spot where we stood and I looked upward at the sky and I waved at the satellites <laughs> he said this this fishing hole was rated four and a half stars out of ten and I was immediately chafed I said four and a half stars that well, I've been fishing this place for a millennia and this place is at least Five stars, maybe five and a half. He said, well, I ain't caught nothing all day. I said, it don't matter. I I hadn't caught anything in here in about 18 years. It's still a five-star fishing hole. I was offended. It doesn't take much to offend me now that I get a little bit older. Now I get older. It was an August day that Lynette Andrews' father died. I remember him. He was a good man. He was a baseball fanatic. 
Oh, he loved baseball. Long ago, he took Lynette to the 1982 World Series in St. Louis. It was a series between the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals, the Gas House Gang. They called it the Suds Series because it was against the team who was sponsored by Anheuser-Busch and the team that was sponsored by Miller Brewing Company. Never before in history has more beer been consumed during the World Series. She was there for it with her father, but they could not get tickets to get into the stadium. And so they brought a transistor radio and they sat on the bed of their truck and they listened to it along with a whole lot of other people who sat in that in that stadium parking lot listening to the 1982 Sud Series. The St. Louis Cardinals won that game in seven games. They won that series. And I understand during the final play, the stadium itself erupted into a loud cheer. 53,700 people cheered at the tops of their lungs for St. Louis. And you could hear it, they say, in an aircraft flying thousands of feet above that stadium. Lynette said it sounded like an explosion. It was one of the greatest memories of her life when her father took her to that game. She loved baseball, and that made her a unique girl in my eyes, made her a unique, unique woman. When her father died, the light sort of went out of her eyes. You see, she'd always been her own, her own girl. She was nothing like her sisters. After her mother died, she and her father bonded because they were more alike than they were different, whereas he and her two sisters were absolutely different. Her sisters grew up, and they married for money. We all knew they'd done it. We didn't call them gold diggers, at least not to their faces. They were the kind of girls who liked nice things, and they seemed to know this from an early age, and so they, they went after boys who could give them nice things, even though those boys were about as faithful to them as a squirrel in heat. <laughs> they, were just, they were just rowdy boys who, who, who married them, and they made big families together, and it didn't seem like they had a high degree of happiness but, but they, they had the nicest shoes and the nicest handbags and the nicest cars and they lived in very nice homes and they hardly ever saw their husbands because they went off and they, they, they did all sorts of exotic things like play racquetball in Spain or, or go, go, you know, hunt exotic elk up in Winnipeg. But Lynette was not like this at all. She was a simple girl. She's a simple girl. She loved to read as a, young, as a young girl. I can remember that. She loved to read. And she loved to write. And she had even tried to, to write once. She tried to write a book, and she'd never finished it. It was a book about her mother. She was doing her research about her mother. And, and she didn't have the steam to keep going. She, she abandoned it when she was in her mid-twenties. She was a good, good child. And she was a good woman. Her father was 86, I believe, or 87 when he passed. And it was an August day. And it was during the season when the World Series contestants were, were getting into a heated battle. And she would sit there as his caregiver in his living room while he would sit in his lazy boy recliner. And they would watch games. 
They'd watch games. She paid for a satellite service that could give her any broadcast game being played by any major team franchise. And they would watch these games, and sometimes they would watch them on multiple screens at once just to see who would be in the runnings for the World Series. And her father, he would kind of come out of that dementia state that he usually lived in, and he seemed to know things, and he would start chanting statistics about old baseball players, and he would start saying things about, about stats and batting averages, and she loved this. She loved this time that she got to spend with her father. Her older sisters, of course, they hardly ever visit. One lived in Pensacola, one lived in Montgomery. But they, they, they all came back into town for his funeral. And it was a beautiful funeral. I do remember that. It was a beautiful funeral. A Baptist funeral is something that must be seen to be enjoyed. It must be experienced because truly, if you are a Baptist, the best day of your life is going to be your funeral. No, I mean it. A man's best day is his funeral because this is the day when his family and his friends and even his past acquaintances and somewhat enemies, they all gather together to talk about what a great man you were. They will get up on a little stage and they will tell stories. 90% of these stories are not true. They will talk about you even if you were a rowdy man like you were St. Francis of Assisi. And it sounds so convincing that, that people, even people who knew you, start to believe that you were a good person. <laughs> this was a marvelous Baptist funeral. It was a glorious Baptist funeral. The Baptist preacher preached one doozy of a sermon. He preached a marvelous sermon about about Lynette's father. Lynette's father wasn't exactly the world's greatest man. He wasn't even a Baptist, truly. He only attended once or twice a year on Christmas and on, on Easter. But a good Baptist minister can preach a funeral sermon that makes a man, even if he was Otis Campbell in your town, sound like he was Nelson Mandela. And that's exactly what happened. And after the service, then things get really good. On, on, on a funeral that is held in the Baptist church, they will hold the potluck in the back to feed the grieving family. And in this potluck, you will find so many deviled eggs, it will give you a kidney stone. Sister Renee Fishman is the one who cooks them deviled eggs. She is so good at this, at cooking deviled eggs. This is her gift on this earth. And people only know her as the deviled egg woman. She gets at least two calls a week for services within the four-county area to serve deviled eggs. She is so good at it, she can do this with her eyes closed in her sleep, hands tied behind her back and blindfolded. She can cook 40,000 deviled eggs at once and have them hand-delivered to your little small clapboard church out in the sticks inside of 24 hours. And she does this. There ain't nothing to her recipe of deviled eggs. It's just a little bit of Duke's mayonnaise, salt and pepper sprinkled with paprika. But this is a sacrament. A sacrament. The Augustina was a nice one. I found Lynette sitting in the corner. I went and I joined her. I sat down beside her and I said, How are you doing? She said, I don't know. He wasn't doing that well, you know. 
You know, to tell you the truth, I'm kind of relieved. I didn't know what to say because who does know what to say in a situation like that? She said, you know, I think the thing that's going to be the hardest is the World Series this year. I don't know who I'm going to watch it with. And I don't really know that I care who wins. Her father, the man who used to take her to go see the Chattanooga Lookouts, the Birmingham Barons, the man who would drive great distances to see a ball game with his daughter. He left her alone. He left her alone to watch the the August contenders fight for a position in the World Series. Summers that went by after that, she got a job working with Keith Coker. He's a caterer in our town. He he's an awful cook, <laughs> but he is the only cook in town. She helped him deliver food to Baptist functions, Methodist functions, and even on rare occasions, a Presbyterian function. A Presbyterian, you will note, does not like to do many potluck functions because a Presbyterian is really just a Baptist who likes to drink but can't afford to be Episcopal. <laughs> so they don't have a whole lot of functions that set around food. They, they, prefer, they prefer something else altogether. She would deliver food with Keith Coker for the next few years. And it wasn't until a few years later, right around August, that she got a phone call from her father's lawyer, who she had known her whole life as Uncle Robert. And Uncle Robert called her, and he said, I need you to come into my office. She drove across town to Uncle Robert's office. She walked in. It's a little old building that used to be an insurance building long ago before Robert took it over. Robert's father used to sell insurance. It's got asbestos on the walls and on the ceilings, and it's got old gaudy orange carpet, and it smells like mildew. She walked into his little office. She sat down. He said, I've got some news for you, and I'm not really sure how to deliver it, to be honest. He said, when your father died, he made me wait two years before I could, I could deliver what I'm going to deliver to you. He gave a, a manila envelope to her, slid it across his desk, and she thumbed it open and she looked at it. She said, what am I looking at here? He said, well... Your father left you $83,000. She about couldn't breathe. She said, what? He said, yeah, but the rub is here. He didn't leave nothing to your sisters. And that's why he wanted me to wait, if you ask me. I think he wanted me to wait so that there would be no suspicions. She said, my father was was a poor man. He didn't have nothing but his house when he died. He said, no, I'm sorry to say your father was very smart with his money. He put a little bit into this this fund every month for all his life. He instructed me to give this to you. She left that lawyer's office and she crawled into her car and she cried and she cried. She wasn't even sure what she was crying about. She drove home and she wished... She wished that she had some sort of clear directive as to what to do, but she didn't. She didn't know what she was going to do. She had $83,000 to her name, and she didn't know what 
she would do with it. And so she did what all people have been doing for a long time. They just sit around and they do nothing. When in doubt, just let moss cover your body. <laughs> and then one day she was catering a party with Keith Coker. It was a party for a, a fraternity and a sorority. Two members of the fraternity and the sorority were getting married to each other. And they were catering this, and they were setting up the casserole chafing dishes over, over the Bunsen burners. And she looked at these kids, and they seemed so hopeful because they were going to school. And here she was in her early 40s, and she decided right then and there she would go to school. She enrolled in community college, and she took English classes to start with. And something inside her was ignited. She decided that she would start writing and she did. She wrote, and she enjoyed it, and she made good grades. And by the time she'd finished college, she exited with a degree in journalism. And then she found a job in South Carolina working for a newspaper called the Tri-County Star. She wrote for the Tri-County Star, and then she was graduating to the editor of this tiny town newspaper. About a few weeks ago, I saw Lynette Andrews for the first time in a long time. She's 51 years old, and she's beautiful. She works out a lot, so she keeps herself in good shape. She's slender. She hasn't had a piece of saturated fat since the 1990s. (laughs) And so there is no fat on her. She just looks healthy. She looks a lot like her father. She came back into town around about August. She went up to that little cemetery. She squatted down and she, she had a hat, a baseball hat. A hat she'd found in a box in her father's house that had a B on it for Braves. Back when the Braves were in Milwaukee, before they moved, Atlanta, her father had been a Braves fan. She set that hat down right there on his grave. And then she cracked open a beer and she set that beer down on his grave too. Left it open. She touched the stone. She said, Daddy, it looks like the Braves are racing the Phillies this year for a spot in the National League in the World Series. And she stood up She walked away from that graveyard. She got into her car and she drove by the old house that her father had raised her in. She just looked at it from the curb. She just looked at it. She hit the gas and she drove on outside of town back onto the two-lane highways which lead to the interstate which lead back South Carolina where she is going to work and enjoy her life. She wrote me a letter not long ago. She wrote me in that email and she said, you know what? Something my father used to tell me a long time ago that I never really understood was that no man could stand in the same river twice. I never knew what that meant. Now, Now I think I do know what it means.
And so to every man, old man, and young, and to every woman, old and young, who shares the gift of stickball with their family. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever get back. So it's root, root, root for the whole team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes you're out at the old Thanks for having me tonight. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich. And man, it has been a bona fide pleasure if I do say so myself. Hope you join us next week and the week after that if you ain't got nothing going on. The music I heard behind me today was Hearts Gone South. Trisha Tripp, Joel Jackson, John James Tuerville, Mick Glasgow, and Derek Spivey. These guys play original, true, solid gold country honky-tonk. The real kind that your parents used to listen to. Born out of unfortunate tales of love gone wrong. And ending in a stack of classic country style hits. Hailing out of Asheville, North Carolina, Hearts Gone South is led by Trisha Tripp with a cast and crew of country all-star players. These guys shoot straight from the hip. Why don't you check them out online, download their new album, or look them up on Facebook at Hearts Gone South. Find out more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com or look us up on iTunes and leave us a review. If you visit our site, you'll see a place where you can drop us a line. And I hope you take the time to do that because I love to hear from my friends and people who tune into this show. Tell us about your birthday announcements, your anniversaries, your wedding announcements. Tell us about the church potluck on the church lawn and we just might show up. But definitely we will do our best to read your letters over the air because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, some of the world's greatest feats were accomplished by people who were not smart enough to know that they were impossible. Yeah, to Adios. Your big list of little things.